You're listening to the Antmoot Podcast, the podcast about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intersect with political philosophy. This is episode nine, Music of the Ainur, in which co-hosts Kenny and Sam discuss the Ainulindale, which is both the creation myth of Tolkien's universe and the first part of the Silmarillion. Welcome, listeners, to the Entmoot Podcast. I am your co-host, Kenny Tallarico. I'm here with my great friend, Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you? I'm very well. We are actually recording this live from my house. Yes, this is our first in-person record. We need to see how the dynamics change. Yeah, I hope the listeners monitor very closely. <laughs> yeah, for any, any cues that we're in person. Make it a drinking game. Yes, and happy 2023 to all Entmoot Pod listeners. This is our first episode of 2023. To everyone celebrating the new year. We are starting what is uh, a new Entmoot Podcast um, line of episodes, which is going to be us talking about the Silmarillion chapter by chapter or section by section, um, one or the other, probably chapter by chapter, but sometimes there's really short chapters. Um, so this episode, we're going to be focusing on the Ainulindale, which is the very first part of the Silmarillion. Um, I thought we would talk about first, like what the Silmarillion is for listeners who might not be familiar. I'll say quickly, the Silmarillion is, was published posthumously in 1977 by, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's son, Christopher, who became the, um, how would you call it? Like the executor of his father's estate in it. Yeah, yeah, like he was the sole, like, representative, I guess, of his father's will. Maybe that's, like, a more sort of, like, romantic way of yeah, describing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he was the one who was kind of led the charge of editing everything that his father didn't publish during his lifetime. Which he was formally placed in control of doing, should his father yes, die exactly, by yeah. his father. Yep, exactly. Uh, there was no better person to do it because his dad had been telling him all these stories as bedtime stories since he was a little kid, and so he was intimately familiar with the world. I don't think anyone else could have done it as 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 well and as faithfully as he did. I also think it's worth mentioning that even in earlier works by J.R.R. Tolkien, Christopher Tolkien was acting as an assistant. Right. So, like, the maps you see in the Lord of the Rings editions that you probably read or have read— um, those maps were drawn primarily by Christopher Tolkien, and he also helped out a number of things, not like key story ideas, but just like a number of organizational things um, with uh, putting together the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's that's right. So so in his work in a lot of ways, especially for the stuff that was published posthumously, is was really kind of preserving his father's legacy. And uh, Sam and I are, are big Christopher Tolkien fans uh, in general. Uh, so yeah, rest in peace. He died uh, fairly recently. Yeah, he died. I think right before the pandemic in 2020, and he was he was he was up there. He was like 98, mm -hmm. so he lived a, a long life. But um, so the the Silmarillion, though, as as uh, we were saying, was published in 77. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien died in I believe 1974. So this was published posthumously. Uh, it was really the first work uh, of Tolkien's that was published after his death. And it is also the, the, the book or the, the work that he spent the most time over the course of his life working on. Uh, there are stories in it that he started writing in, during, uh, during the First World War when he was, uh, when he was a soldier in, in Europe. And he continued writing 
the the various stories throughout throughout his whole life. So the the story of the fall of Gondolin and uh, and of Baron and Luthien and some of the sort of epic tales and, and myths that that he gives in the Silmarillion were written during the the nineteen teens and and twenties. Um, and while he was writing Lord of the Rings, and especially after Lord of the Rings, he spent uh, the better part of like 20 years trying to figure out ways to tie everything together. And to flesh out auxiliary stuff like the cosmology and the evolution of, of the world and the geography, which he didn't pay as much attention to when he was first setting these stories down in the, the 20s and 30s. That's right, yeah. So basically, though, it is a... Um, the best way that I, I can think to describe the Silmarillion would be uh, to people who are familiar with the characters in Lord of the Rings. Um, I always sort of like to say that most of the Silmarillion is po- probably like what uh, Legolas or another one of the elves or one of the men of Gondor would have read in history class. Uh, the Quenta Silmarillion, it, it's, sort of, it's sort of myth, but it's kind of almost how we read like Greek or Roman history, that there is myth mixed in with stuff that it was probably true. The, the way I sort of think about it is it's somewhere in between reading the Bible as a kid and reading a high school history textbook. But I think your description is probably better. Yeah, well, no, no, no. That, those are, because no, it, there, there's a mixture of like things that are presented as these are the way that these things happened. Like there are gods and demigods and uh, not by those names, but deities essentially that are characters in the stories. Uh, and it's not present. It's sort of like when you're reading Greek myths where like the the deities are just kind of like people that do stuff, right? Um and interact with people who are not deities, and um, so it, it's it's sort of like that. But but on a on a more specific level, this is the thing that I, I would like to really uh, emphasize that the the Silmarillion, the the book as published, is actually broken into five parts. Uh, the third of which is by far the longest, um, and so which I I always liked that the Silmarillion has. I think of it as almost kind of a symmetrical structure because the third part is by far the longest. The first and second part are both really short, and the fourth and fifth part are both really short. And so, I, I don't know, I kind of have always appreciated that that nice symmetry. But the, the first part, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is called the Aina Lindale, which is the creation myth of the, the universe. Um, after that is the Valaquenta, which is an accounting of uh, each of the the Valar, who are basically uh, like the the sort of like the pantheon of this universe, although it is a, a monotheistic universe. Um, then the third part, which as I mentioned, is by far the longest, is the Quenta Silmarillion, uh, that has tons and a bunch of chapters within it. Uh, the fourth part is of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, so that's sort of your or no, excuse me, the fourth part is the Akalabath. Um, which is the story of the Second Age. Uh, you may be uh, familiar with that from the Amazon series, The Rings of Power. We, which we have not watched, and we will not watch. Or review. Um, or discuss further. If you enjoy it, that's, that's fine. Yes, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's nothing against people who enjoy it, but this is a, this is a podcast about the, the books, and to a lesser extent, because you know we all grew up with them, the, the movies, uh, and, and I, anything else I don't think we're going to really touch. Yeah, that's 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 right. So the fourth part, though, is the Akalabath, which is the story of the Second Age. Uh, it's also worth saying, we t- we've talked about this, especially on our first episode. Um, 
but but broadly, there are four ages of uh, in in uh, in Tolkien's universe. Um, the Aina Lindale and Valaquenta are set before the beginnings of the ages. They're kind of like the the creation myth and the and the pre um, the prehistory. The Quentin Silmarillion is all set in the first age, and so that, like I mentioned, is pretty long. The Akalabath and the story of Numenor and the Rings of Power on Amazon, those are in the second age of Middle-earth, which uh, there is just kind of less about, like most of Tolkien's writing was about the first or the third age. Then the third age is, you get the end of the third age is The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings. Uh, you get some context about the beginning and middle of the third age as well in the Akalabath. And then in the last part of the Silmarillion, which is called Of the Rings of Power and the Third Age. So that's about the creation of the rings. You start uh, seeing some of the characters that you know and love. Um, some of the, you know, you, I, I think he briefly mentions hobbits. The Silmarillion is where you really get the sense of how cosmically extremely insignificant the hobbits are. And w actually with the Silmarillion, I always think that it makes the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit much more uh, poignant tales because you, you get a sense of that, like, wow, it's, it's actually not exaggeration when you like say, when you realize how insignificant the hobbits are. Yeah. So, all that's to say, though, there are five parts of the Silmarillion. Aina Lindale, Valaquenta, Quenta Silmarillion, the Akalabath, and Of the Rings of Power in the Third Age. Um, today we're going to be talking about the Aina Lindale. I can't emphasize enough that the Aina Lindale and the Valaquenta are both very short. The Aina Lindale in my edition is like uh, seven or eight pages. And so we're just going to be talking about those seven or eight pages today. I guess we can uh, we can get into it. I I'll also briefly mention that there is a, I believe in every like modern edition of the Silmarillion, modern being, you know, from like anything from the 21st century, I believe they're all published with a preface that's actually just Tolkien's letter to Milton Wadman in 1951. And it's, it's so good. Yeah. It yeah. is so good. It's basically him summarizing better than anyone can, um, like, what the Silmarillion is, and, and in fact, how it fits in as well with the stories of, of Lord of the Rings and, and, and The Hobbit. We, we can briefly mention, there is this one part in the letter that is, uh, is relevant, and it's him discussing the creation myth, which is what we're going to be talking about in the Aina Lindale. So I'm just going to read this paragraph. The cycles begin with a cosmological, says cosmogonical. I don't know that word. He also, I bet it's a real word, but it's also worth mentioning that Tolkien made up words to use as he saw fit, which is based and yeah. sick and more people should do. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if cosmogonical is a word that was like last used by like a monk in the 11th century. Yeah. That he was just like, I'm going to bring this one back. Yeah, which he did often. Um, he did a lot, yeah. Okay, the cycles begin with a cosmogonical myth, the music of the Ainur. God and the Valar, uh, parenthesis, or powers, Englished as gods, on parenthesis, are revealed. These latter are, as we should say, angelic powers, whose function is to exercise delegated authority in their spheres of rule and government, not creation, making or remaking. They are divine, in quotes, that is, were originally outside and existed before the making of the world. Their power and wisdom is derived from their knowledge of the cosmogonical drama, which they perceived first as a drama, that is, as in a fashion we perceive a story composed by someone else, and later as a, quote, reality. 
On the side of mere narrative device, this is, of course, meant to provide beings of the same order of beauty, power, and majesty as the gods of higher mythology, which can yet be accepted. Well, shall we say baldly, by a mind that believes in the Blessed Trinity. So that is, that is his own summary of the Aina Lindale to Milton Waldman. So like he said, Aina Lindale tr- translates to mean the music of the Ainur. Before we even start talking about what the actual uh, like creation myth story is, why don't you explain who the Ainur are, who the Valar are, the Maiar, uh, and then a- a- also the supreme deity? Yeah, so I'll start with the supreme deity, who is called Eru or Iluvatar or Eru Iluvatar. Eru is like his name. Uh, in Arda, he's called Iluvatar. That's like the opening line to the Ainulindale. Iluvatar, who is God, exists outside of the world in the formless void. And then he calls forth um, a number of other spirits who we'll get to soon, who he also created. And with, uh, you know, sort of instructing them to help him, but him directing everything, created the world. Uh, and this act of creation is Ea. Um, Which is just spelled E-A. Yes. Um, and that in and Ea is the world that is um, the existing world uh, on our side of the void. Right. Um, it's, you can think of it as basically like the universe. Yeah. Think of it as the universe. Arda is, think of it as a planet. It's like, really, at this point in the cosmology, it's actually a flat, symmetrical disc. That's but, true. Tolkien, <laughs> Tolkien, Tolkien's world is canonically a flat Earth for, for... For a period of time. For a period of time. By the time you hit Lord of the Rings, it's canonically a spherical planet. Yeah. And this is partially due to a change in his own views on how to create things, but he also has these both as canon. And there's... There, act- there's an in-world reason. Yeah, there's an in-world reason for it, yeah. which we don't have to get into now. But, uh, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Arda, think of that as the planet. So Iluvatar creates Arda. Uh, the Ainur are the uh, first other beings. They're the sort of formless uh, angelic spirits out in the void with Iluvatar. And with their help, I'm again directing it. Think of them as craftsmen. He creates the world. He then gives them the opportunity to, if they so choose, enter the world. The Ainur who enter the world are known as the Maiar. And with No, the, the Valar. The oh, Ma- yes. The Maiar are the, the lower ones. Yeah, uh, I just screwed it up already. That's okay. Yeah, no, so they're known as the Valar. And within that classification, uh, the uh, lower down ones are the Maiar. Right. Um, and then there's a few really high up ones who we think of as the Valar, even though they're technically all Valar. But usually when it refers to the Valar, it's specifically referring to those who aren't the Maiar. That, that's right, yes. So, as I mentioned, in my edition of this, the Ainulindale is seven pages long. In mine, it's eight and a half. Yeah. Uh, so, the um, it's, not a, it's not a long story, and it really is a, a creation myth. Uh, the, the, here's, the, here's the first paragraph of it. Uh, and this will give you, this is a context, this is how the Silmarillion starts, and so, of course, in world, this is also how everything starts. There was Eru, the one, who in Arda is called Iluvatar, and he made first the Ainur, the holy ones, that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before aught else was made. Actually, I'm going to stop there already, because I want to emphasize that 
it it it, it specifically stated he made first the the Ainur. So this is coming out of I think the the dual desire of Tolkien's to both um, create a world that is explicitly monotheistic, which it had to be, which it had to be to I mean to be consonant with like his own beliefs. Yeah. Um, but also be able to have a fun cast of characters who are essentially like a pantheon, even though they're not technically gods. They basically function as gods. Their behavior on the world, especially in the earlier ages of Middle-earth, is very similar to that of gods. They don't get it to as many sort of silly hijinks as the Greek gods do, but it's a similar function early on. Although later on, less so. Yes, exactly. Um, Iluvatar tends to be pretty hands-off. There's with, like there's only a few notable exceptions of him being very hands-on. Um, there's like, yeah, there's only a few. One of them is making the world round instead of flat. <laughs> yes, which um, there's a reason for. Yes, there's a reason for it. So he only, he only intervenes when things are uh, particularly dire or extraordinary. Iluvatar, that is. Um, so... In that very first sentence, though, you get just like in the beginning of uh, in the beginning of the, like the Gospel of John, you get you know in the beginning there was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God, right? Uh, it's very similar that this is saying there was Eru, the One, and He made first the Ainur, the Holy Ones. Eru is all that is, and the Ainur, who I also love that it says who were the offspring of His thought, giving Eru some of these typically human characteristics of being sort of almost imaginative that he that and and the Ainur coming about as an offspring of his thought almost as if he was sort of almost like he's dreaming sort of yeah no I I, I'm completely with that I mean a sort of the idea of existence as coming from the dreaming of a god or a godhead Mm -hmm. is pretty common I don't think Tolkien would have conceptualized it on those terms Mm -hmm. but I think it sort of works I also think it's interesting that that exact sort of description fits a number of belief systems and fictional universes like around the world like that both exists in indigenous a number of indigenous uh, spiritual practices in North America also the Elder Scrolls universe if anyone's into that lore <laughs> which isn't very good but it's fun yeah um, but yeah no I mean I think the imaginative aspect is like the most important thing because to Tolkien the highest goal of life beyond religion was art and the two were also related and he in a specific letter actually addresses this and says that his world doesn't really have magic and magic only exists to him and in this world as the idea of a frictionless artistic process where you can create art without really effort. And that the ways in which the elves, for instance, are magical is they can implement their artistic desires. Uh, and he calls this a sub-creative impulse. Mm-hmm. This is what the elves have humans to a lesser extent this is what Tolkien himself has and the reason it's sub-creative is because there's only one creator capital C which is God in both the real world Tolkien um, and uh, God in this universe it's also interesting I think to think about this in terms of sort of the artistic process where Tolkien was very creative he was also very conscious of how he was reinterpreting and repackaging um and reformatting certain existing myths or practice or belief systems um, to varying degrees of explicitness, whether that's the 
dwarf names in the Hobbit coming straight out of like verbatim uh, Norse myth, uh, specifically the poetic Edda, or whether that's you know the fall of Numenor being a sort of direct retelling of various Platonic Atlantis, or really the the Platonic Atlantis myth, or Baron and Luthien being a sort of retelling of the uh, Finnish uh, Kalevela. And I think that another thing he's maybe doing less explicitly, but also sort of implicitly doing, at least to me, is acknowledging sort of how art comes about and how stories are told in this sort of sub-creative way. Yeah. Where you're taking existing things and repackaging them, but you're also supposed to be shining light on eternal truths. Exactly. And, you know, what I find interesting about that is that I think it mirrors saying that you're creating something in both that sense that anything that you're doing is informed and based around things that have come before, but also that if you think about that in the artistic sense, that that's the case. It would have, if you think about creating something physical, like you are building something or doing something like that, I think even in that case, you can say you're creating something, but every all the components that you're using to create it could only have come from a single creator, which is God. Like all of the matter that exists in the universe comes from the creator with a capital C. I think that that is also potentially part of like the idea of subcreation. I actually think that that's more relevant. That conception of it is more relevant when you're talking about the Valar and them wanting to create. Yeah, that Aluvatar is the only is the only being that can that can create with a capital C, and the also the only being that can give life. Yes, and this is and we've gotten into this before. We'll get into it again. This is especially highlighted through the story of the existence of the dwarves. That's right. Yep, and we'll we'll definitely get to that. I guess in the Quintus Silmarillion at yeah. some at some point. Uh, so okay, now that was our discussion on the first sentence of the Ainulindale. Um, so we haven't gotten to the thing that I love the most about the Ainulindale, and that is that this is the the creation myth is explicitly that the, the world is sort of conjured. Iluvatar, uh, Iluvatar brings the, the Ainur into being, and then he sort of acts as this celestial conductor of an orchestra. This is also an explicit thing. Yeah, no, it's they, all done as an orchestra. As music. music. Yeah, that's right, as, as music. And the Ainur each play a part in this, I think it's actually more of like a choir. I think they're singing. So I'll say here, uh, this is the rest of that first paragraph. And he spoke to them, propounding to them themes of music, and they sang before him, and he was glad. But for a long while they sang only each alone, or but few together, while the rest hearkened. For each comprehended only that part of the mind of Iluvatar from which he came, and in the understanding of their brethren they grew but slowly. Yet ever as they listened they came to deeper understanding, and increased in unison and harmony." This is also not the creation of the universe. This is almost like the conjuring of the universe to show them. Yes. Right? It, it is is represented in the form of a sort of orchestra or choir. Um, what I think makes it particularly uh, beautiful is the idea that actually for the universe to be conjured and to come into being, not only does the music need to be like beautiful – but it also needs to be created as a joint effort of all of the Ainur. And to and that they need to be sort of cooperating with each other and showing restraint 
uh, in what they're doing. I mean, as a, again, as a person who plays music, it is a very common thing for musicians, including myself in the past or at, at times, to want to sort of be the one who takes the lead. And like, I want a solo for longer, or I want to, you know, I want to be the loudest here. The Ainur are sort of sitting around, mostly like in small groups. They all need to like come together and recognize, this really fits in as well with the discussions we had on like Tolkien's ideal society too because yeah. actually the, this it, it it actually does work as well when you're talking about the context of an orchestra or a band because or a choir because for it to really work every person needs to know their role and to not to both fulfill their role and give what they can to it and give their all to it but also to not overstep that role even if they're capable of doing so and I think that um, that conception of like, which is an essentially small c conservative conception of society, is also the correct sort of organizational method of like m gr musical groups. And that is kind of what he's portraying here. But I think that it's, I, I, I absolutely love that. Because you also get there, I'm kind of rambling, but you also get there like the, the idea of... Um, you get the idea of the need for cooperation and for like the social impulse uh, yes. among, among the Ainur, but among it, you also get the need for the respect of others and their capabilities too, that you're not the only one that matters. And that's what you see with Some, Something else you have is you have a sort of supreme monarch over them, um, like you would have in Tolkien's ideal society. I, I think I, I think we've we've as we've discovered through this podcast, um, so you have a sort of supreme monarch over the Einar, and they all have roles, but they're also fulfilling their roles because they know they should, not because there's a coercive force necessarily forcing them to. Um, they're not policed into their roles, um, which I think is another thing that sort of follows with maybe Tolkien's political beliefs as you see them in the Shire, which we talked about in a previous episode, mm -hmm. is like you have the sort of small C conservative um, knowing of the roles, but you also have that sort of naturally coming about rather than um, it's sort of emerging from coercion. Although there is the threat of coercion from the Supreme Monarch. So after that first section, Iluvatar calls the Ainur together and basically says, all of you guys should play together because I... I gave you all the spirit to be able to to create, you know, a beautiful song. And he calls them all together, and uh, here's where you kind of get the role of him as conductor. Um, but, uh, so, he says... Can I, can I take this one? Yes, absolutely. Then Iluvatar said to them, Of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now that ye make in harmony together a great music. And since I have kindled you with the flame imperishable, ye shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme." each with his own thoughts and devices, if he will. But I will sit and hearken and be glad that through you, great beauty has been awakened into song. Speaking again about what we were talking about earlier, each with his own thoughts and devices, I think is, is, a, is a statement of use like what is unique to you in this song, uh, because what is unique to you is the thing that you, that you have to bring. And that's related to the conversation earlier about, 
about roles and, 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 and all of that. It says, Then the voices of the Ainur, like unto harps and lutes and pipes and trumpets and viols and organs, and like unto countless choirs singing with words, began to fashion the theme of Iluvatar to a great music. And a sound arose of endless interchanging melodies woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights, and the places of the dwelling of Iluvatar were filled to overflowing, and the music and the echo of the music went out into the void, and it was not void. That's one of my favorite lines, uh, and I to, to make the context super clear, uh, the capitalization actually is really important because it says, the echo of the music went out into the void, which is capitalized, capital V, and it was not void, lowercase v. So he's using the void as a noun and then the adjective, right? And then the, the line immediately following this is also super interesting because it, it reflects uh, the, the, the piece of Tolkien's mythos that he sort of failed I think he would also say this, to flesh out it the most. Um, and that is, never since have the Einar made any music like to this music, though it has been said that a greater still shall be made before Iluvatar by the choirs of the Einar and the children of Iluvatar after the end of days. He had a pretty clear image on what this was going to be um, back when the Silmarillion was the Book of Lost Tales in the earlier versions of it, especially like the version that he completed in, I think, like 1929. Um, that I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but there was basically going to be a Ragnarok type event, okay. a great battle where Melkor would be returned from the gates of uh, time and he would fight. I forget which Maiar, but actually a Maiar, not a Valar. Mm. Cause you would imagine it would be Tolkus, but it right. actually was not. It was one of the Maiar and he would fight the Maiar and he would be defeated. And a number of different people would have a great role in this fight including dead elves and dead men, um, including uh, Turin. And then he sort of scrapped this idea. And in the last few years of his life, one of the things he was sort of frantically trying to do was to chart out the sort of end of the universe scenario and what exactly was going to happen. And he didn't really finalize it or finish it up. And I think that's sort of interesting to think about when you especially read this one sentence is that there, I mean, as amazing as all of this is, there are parts of the legendarium which weren't really perfected or completed, which I think is also relevant because it sort of touches on Tolkien's broad belief, which is correct, that nothing can be perfected or completed, um, which which I like that there's something that's sort of unfinished. So now we get into, we get into Melkor, who's the, uh, at the beginning of year, is, is the main Ainur that is mentioned by name. Sam, do you want to read that that chapter that starts with "But now Iluvatar"? Because that's the introduction of of Melkor. Yeah, and this one is like every single sentence in this uh, entire section a certified banger. But now Iluvatar sat and hearkened, and for a great while it seemed good to him, for in the music there were no flaws. But as the theme progressed, it came to the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Iluvatar. For he sought therein to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. To Melkor among the Ainur had been given the greatest gifts of power and knowledge, and he had a share in all the gifts of his brethren. He had gone often alone into the void places seeking the imperishable flame, for desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own. Also, being is capitalized there, and that's very relevant. And it seemed to him that Iluvatar took no thought for the void, and he was impatient of its emptiness. Yet he found not the fire, for it is with Iluvatar, 
But being alone, he had begun to conceive thoughts of his own, unlike those of his brethren. And so what you get here is that the rest of the um, Valar are certainly not perfect. And you get that through the rest of the Silmarillion. And in certain ways, even hints of it in the rest of Tolkien's work. But they're never sort of openly questioning their role insofar as they're tasked not with creating their own things. And Melkor, from sort of almost the very beginning, is both the most powerful of all the Ainur. And the smartest. And the smartest. Melkor is going out, he's chilling in the void alone, and he's being antisocial. And <laughs> literally. Literally. And uh, coming up with ways he could supersede his brothers and his sisters and his dad. Basically, yeah, like basically. Like directly. Yeah. Uh, He's like an angsty child. He's an angsty teenager. And one thing that I think you get through the entire Silmarillion is from the beginning to the end, he's an angsty teenager. Yeah. And his motivations never really move that far beyond that. Yeah. Just like what we were talking about earlier, the idea of Melkor, uh, or or, excuse me, the idea of the the Ainur being. being able to create beautiful music and being successful in in the task Iluvatar gives them, first of all, is because Iluvatar wills it and 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 you know uh, endows them with the ability to to do so. Uh, but also because they cooperate with one another and because they understand the roles that they play in in the sort of this this cosmic um, drama, I guess, or whatever you would you would call it. Um, Melkor. The traits that Melkor has that are negative, that Tolkien portrays as negative, are, I think, quite significant. The first is that he is off sulking by himself and being antisocial, like Sam said. He's like a loner. Uh, and uh, He's really edgy. He's very edgy. That's right. Yeah, he's in, exactly. He's not willing to associate with or to, to you know, show love to his brothers and sisters, like Sam said, the other Ainur. Um and he's not willing to cooperate with them and to to create song with them without himself taking the leading role. Um, and uh, what's also relevant the the idea that Melkor is explicitly ha- he explicitly has the greatest gifts of power and knowledge, and he had a share in all the gifts of his brethren, meaning. That anything that any of his siblings could do, he could also do. Maybe, maybe not as well, but he could do like everything. He's the most complete of all of them. That's exact. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. And and so these traits, though, of of Melkor being super smart and powerful, and knowing it, and thinking that he deserves more power than uh, than the other Ainur are. I guess to put it mildly, would get him into trouble. Oh, and by the way, I, I should mention uh, the imperishable flame or the 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 fire that's always mentioned is the flame imperishable the, as it's referenced in Lord of the Rings. Yes, Gandalf says that in the movie as well on yep. the on the bridge with the Balrog, and, and it's sick. It's, it's so it's dope. it's a good moment. Um, it's that is uh, the that is the ability of sub uh, to subcreate uh, the the imperishable flame. Uh, is 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 sort of it's a reference to um, Iluvatar's ability to bring matter into being, and that's or to bring things into being, uh, and that's why he 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 says that uh, he's he's gifting the the flame imperishable to um, uh, to the Ainur 
basically giving them the ability to to subcreate and to bring into things of bring into being things of their own with his assent basically so basically what happens is melkor joins in with the other einor in the song uh in in the music but just like we were talking about he basically needs to be louder and Tolkien also describes as more vain, which I love, than the music of the other Ainur. Yeah, so just some quick context. Uh, Melkor disrupts the theme that Iluvatar is conducting, this sort of beautiful theme in unison. And he interweaves his own theme, which doesn't really fit it. And it sort of ruins the music. And it sounds all shitty and like dissonant. And then Iluvatar is like, okay, shit, I have to do a new theme because this one got ruined. Then Iluvatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that he smiled, and he lifted up his left hand, and a new theme began amid the storm, like and yet unlike to the former theme, and it gathered power and had new beauty. But the discord of Melkor rose in uproar and contended with it, and again there was a war of sound more violent than before, until many of the Ainur were dismayed and sang no longer, and Melkor had the mastery. Now, his description of the two songs that are playing as Melkor's gets louder and louder is, It seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Iluvatar, and they were utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes. And it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its solemn pattern. In the midst of this strife, whereat the halls of Iluvatar shook and a tremor ran out into the silences yet unmoved, Iluvatar arose a third time and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both his hands and in one cord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Iluvatar, the music ceased. It's a beautiful line, and with that, I'm going to get my laptop charger. <laughs> So now we get into the part where the universe is actually sort of beginning to be conjured, right? So Iluvatar speaks and says, Mighty are the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know, and, and all the Ainur, that I am Iluvatar, those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done. And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. Which is probably like top five Tolkien lines, period. Yeah. And I, I quote to myself frequently. It, it doubles as like just an insane, beautiful, like cosmological statement about God bringing things into being because Iluvatar is God in this context. It's also a sick burn to Melkor of saying like, Melkor, I know that you're playing your dumb song because you think because you're like basically trying to spite me because you're an angsty teen yeah but everything you do i know that you're gonna do it and it's part of my plan i actually also i take it back as much as i love it i i, I just thought about it i don't even think it's in my top five Lindley sentences it, i mean if we're talking about like in christian theology that god is even supreme over satan and, and that it, at, at the end of the world god will win unless you're a gnostic and believe in gnostic dualism unless you're a heretic 
Wow, all of our Gnostic Duelist fans out there are going to hate that take. Yeah, you know what? If you're a Gnostic Duelist heretic, turn the podcast off at this this instant. Gnosticism is actually sort of interesting and cool. No, I, I know. I, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. No, we spe- just want to emphasize that. If we actually do have a Gnostic Duelist listener, that, that shit's interesting. I'm speaking from my perspective as a as a doctrinaire Catholic. <laughs> That this is a heresy that was that should have been stamped out and was stamped out when in like the the fourth century. Okay, so if we're talking about the Gnostics in the Balkans, I believe like the eighth or seventh century, and if we're talking about the Cathars in France, who were sort of the followed up on the Balkan Gnostics, I believe that's like the thirteenth century. But I could have my dates for all of that wrong. My my point is that the Catholic Church sorted that shit out at least a millennium ago. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, don't yeah. come at me with that gnostic nonsense. Anyway, yeah, that that's a that's a great sentence and it's about, you know, the only be the only being that has any power to actually create. The only it's the same as when we talk about like God's plan or the plan of God. It's uh God is the only one that can do that. Like and especially when he says, Melkor, no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. Everything that is, no matter how you... Uh, Conspire against me, it only serves mine own goals. Exactly. No matter, no matter how you reconfigure the things that I've willed into being, they will all originally come f- from me, basically. Which is why it's not insane luck that Smeagol ends up destroying the ring. Honestly, yes. No, no, genuinely. Yeah, it's that. That's that's the that is the cosmic order of things. Everything has a place, and everything has a has a purpose, and it's all because it's it's the the plan and the will of of Iluvatar. Exactly. So Melkor gets all embarrassed because uh, Daddy scolded him, and uh, and then of course that he he then gets angry. He gets embarrassed and then angry as petulant children. And, and most people. And most people do. Yeah, exactly. So Iluvatar says, okay, now that I scolded Melkor, I'm going to show you all of the Ainur. This is the sort of fruit of your song. And I imagine this scene as being almost like he sort of gestures and it is sort of like a portal opens or like a window. And all of the Ainur are able to see that what their song brought or could bring into being is like what we would think of as being the universe and and Arda, the world where there are uh, beings, elves and men and all sorts of interesting creatures. Uh, and Aluvatar basically says, this does not exist. And this is not anything. We're, this is still just a void that we exist in outside of time and space and all of that stuff. But your song you know, if I will it, could bring all of this into being. And you have a a role to play in bringing it to being. And you also have some agency to the extent that agency exists if it's all his own goals, but it seems like he is delegating agency to some extent to shape this how, to some extent, how you see fit. He also says after he shows them, and thou, Melkor, wilt discover all the secret thoughts of thy mind and wilt perceive that they are but a part of the whole and tributary to its glory. So even even the, 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 the evil things and the bad things of the world are part of uh, the cosmic order that's willed by Iluvatar. And they also, they it, Iluvatar hid some things from them. So they're not... The the um, Valar or the, the Ainur are not omnipotent. 
it explicitly says that some things are hidden from them. They do not know the course of history, but to some extent, they know some rough outlines That's right. of it. That's right. And I just want to read this line just because it's beautiful. Now, the children of Iluvatar are elves and men, the firstborn and the followers. And amid all the splendors of the world, its vast halls and spaces, and its wheeling fires, Iluvatar chose a place for their habitation in the deeps of time and in the midst of the innumerable stars. And that's, that's my favorite of all the Tolkien lines. Yeah, how many more times are you going to say that? No, that actually is. <laughs> that actually is. Wow, all right, that, that is saying something, yeah. Now, the, the, it, it is also stated here that basically when... When Iluvatar shows the Ainur the the you know the future order of things and the all of the 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 elves and men and all of this creation, Melkor is kind of kind of pictured as like the 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 meme image with the sicko outside the window saying yes yes because Melkor wants above all to be master over other wills which is also the, a very long theme in Tolkien's work of uh, control freaks being bad like people and it's because being a control freak in that sense, is assuming the, the, the role that only only God or Iluvatar can play. Yeah, so some of the Ainur decide to enter the world and assist in its creation of their own, you know, sort of free will, to the extent that free will exists. It does, it does here. It does here, yes. It very much does here. I'm saying to the extent that it exists to reference the sort of notion that maybe they're all just fulfilling um, Iluvatar's goal, which is not the case. He does instill things with a degree of agency, the idea being that no matter how they exhibit that agency, it'll all ultimately fulfill his will. That's right. Which is different than there being no agency. That's right. Whole another conversation you can spiral that off into. I think you, I think you, you said that perfectly. Yes. Though. But basically, some of them enter the world. Some of them do not. It's also made pretty clear that Iluvatar does not bear a grudge against those who do not. There are reasons why one may, may or may not want to enter the world. Also, once you enter the world, you're stuck there. They can't leave, at least not until the end of days. And that's not really clarified exactly how that goes. So for all intents and purposes, for thousands, tens of thousands of years, the, the timeline is weird because a lot of this takes place before the sun and moon. But for eons, they're bound to this world that they're going to help create. So they're gonna, it's going to take a lot of effort, and they'll be able to make cool shit, but they'll also be stuck in their own creation. So it's a, it's a big decision. The Ainur that enter into Ea are called the Valar, and that's the word that you are going to often hear us talk about. Every one of the Valar is also one of the Ainur, but the Ainur that remain in, uh, the, in Iluvatar's realm and don't enter into Ea are not Valar. Valar specifically are the ones that play a direct role in the creation and in the sort of um, story of, of, of the universe. It's also worth mentioning that while once you enter AI, you cannot leave, at least for until the world ends, the same is not true in the reverse order. I don't know exactly when the cutoff date is or if such a thing exists, and I should look into that. That might be in the history of Middle-earth, but... At least a little bit into the creation of the world, um, Ainur, who had not yet entered the world, still could. One of the Valar, who we'll get to later, Tolkas, is not there in the very yeah, beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He enters the world later. So there were those in the void who changed their mind and decide to enter the world. That's right. That's right. Yep. 
Oh, and it, also, Sam, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think it actually is the void because it's it's like the realm of Iluvatar. I think the void is yeah. what there is, but it's we not- said that all wrong. They're not in the void. <laughs> they're like somewhere off. They're in like, like imaginary in, space. They're like in Iluvatar's realm. Yes, they're in Iluvatar's realm in space. They're not actually in the void. The void does still exist as a place of non-existence, and things are cast there. Yes, correct, correct. So basically, though, a bunch of the the Valar, they are busy sub-creating and 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 putting together the universe and and the the world of Arda. And this whole time, uh, Melkor too was quote Melkor too was there from the first, and he meddled in all that was done, turning it if he might, to his own desires and purposes, and he kindled great fires. When therefore earth was yet young and full of flame, Melkor coveted it, and he said to the other Valar, this shall be my own kingdom, and I name it unto myself. Here we're, we're, we're seeing that the, the Valar from the very beginning, after they enter into Ea, are, are engaged in this struggle between Melkor and, and the rest of them, basically. But because Melkor is the, the smartest and the most powerful and everything that we already know, there, there is like a push and pull there. It's not, uh, he's not sort of vastly outnumbered and overpowered by the other Valar. Sam, there was a, a thing in here that kind of reminded me actually of distributism, weirdly enough. Ooh. And so that is that, so Manwe, who like I mentioned, is is sort of the, the second smartest of the Valar and is the chief of the good guys, basically. Here, Manwe says to Melkor, quote, This kingdom thou shalt not take for thine own, wrongfully, for many others have labored here no less than thou. And there was strife between Melkor and the other Valar, and for that time Melkor withdrew and departed to other regions and did there what he would, but he did not put the desire of the kingdom of Arda from his heart. But that that's that idea of others have labored here no less than thou. All of the all of the Valar have this equal claim to their creation. Uh kinda like how people should have equal claim to the fruits of their labor. Yes. Or at least equal claim to the ability to to production. Yeah, and, and you know what? We still haven't done it, and we should do it eventually. The leftist interpretation of Lord of the Rings. Yes. Tolkien was not a leftist. This episode's lying out there somewhere, and it, yeah. it's going to be a banger. It's in the void with a capital V right the, now. Also, the other funny thing is that, like, there was, like, a Jacobin article this week that was, like, doing this, and it did it so poorly. Mm. Sorry to whoever wrote that. I'm sure you're, like, a great person, but I, I read it, and it was, like, not good. I didn't even read and it. we could do it so much better. I'll check it out, and we'll we'll have to start planning for this. Yeah. You get like a real epic of this this tug of war between the 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 good Valar, so to speak, and Melkor. The good Valar create mountains and valleys, and Melkor sort of, you know, perverts them or, or, or reshapes them. I want to quickly say that some people will go on Twitter and be like, "The map of Lord of the Rings doesn't make any sense because you would never have a mountain shape range shaped like all of the mountain ranges are shaped because mountains emerge from like X Y Z geological trends." which, like, is hypothetically right, but they're wrong. The Valar are raising up mountains to sort of control Melkor and, like, box him off in areas, and he's tearing them down, and these mountain ranges are a result of conflict. Exactly, yeah. So so all of these geological features of the world are are created as part of this, like, epic conflict between the good Valar and uh, Melkor. So anyway, that's that's the end of the creation myth, the Ainulindalai. Sam, is there anything else you want to discuss here before we wrap up there's there's nothing really that jumps out to me and and i think a lot of the other stuff sort of surrounding this beginning stage we can get into next when we discuss the valaquenta yeah 
My, my parting words will be that everyone should read this. It's very short. It's very short. It's very readable. I mean, it's written in a sort of antiquated English, but it's it's quite readable nonetheless. And even if you don't want to read The Silmarillion for the number of very valid reasons why you might not want to do that, although we still recommend it, I get why people don't, um, those do not apply to this. I think that's where we, where we can end it. I was going to make note that the way that we're, we're thinking of structuring this is doing episodes like this that are on specific parts and chapters of the Silmarillion. The, the, the four of the five parts that I was talking about earlier that are very short would each get like their own episode like this. And then like the Quintus Silmarillion, which is broken into a lot of chapters. I don't know exactly how many, but it is an order orders of magnitude longer than the rest of the, the parts. Those would be broken up into sort of chapter or, or section episodes. We're also planning on doing um, either mixed in there or at sort of reasonable points in breaks between those episodes, doing episodes that are more like the ones we have done up to this point, which are about like a topic across all of Tolkien's writing. Sam mentioned like a big thing we need to definitely do is like a leftist interpretation of Tolkien because, uh, it there it's, it's been done far less and far less well in our opinion than, like conservative, although there are good examples. There of are versions of it, especially like feminist critiques and stuff. Yes, exactly. And, and I mean, I think it's because oftentimes, I think that it's hard to make an explicitly Marxist uh, interpretation of Lord of the Rings. It's really hard to make an explicitly Marxist interpretation of anything that is pre-modern. It, ex- exactly. Like by definition, Marxist sort of terms don't apply. Yes. To these like pre-capitalist, pre-industrial societies. Um, you can kind of talk about it when you're talking about Mordor or Isengard with the orcs, because they're kind of like a proto-industrialist. Yeah, I mean, they're an ex- exploited proletarian class. Exactly, exactly. Um, and like in our interview with with uh, Maurice Isserman, uh, he mentioned that, you know, talking about the old left sort of as a, a stand-in for like, you know, Marxist theory about how uh, if the stories sort of lined up better with like a more Marxist interpretation... Uh, Frodo and Sam would have, you know, tried to organize the the orcs in Mordor into forming a, a a union. Yes, yeah. Overthrowing Sauron through through the the power of collective bargaining, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or if you're more radical, the power of a workers' revolution. And right. If you're less radical, through the power of a sectoral bargaining agreements and wage setting. Exactly, because that doesn't happen. <laughs> it, it is it it is admittedly difficult to get a like a truly like Marxist or leftist interpretation. But there are versions of, of sort of leftist interpretations, which I think can sort of work. I agree. I agree. That's going to be sort of the roadmap for the future. You can expect episodes that are about chapters of the Silmarillion, certainly sequentially. That's why we started at the beginning. Uh, coming in the future. We're going to be uh, we're gonna be back soon with our episode on the Valaquenta. Sam, it's been a pleasure as always, and even more of a pleasure to do it in person. We just high-fived. Uh, and... Uh, listeners, we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. The Entmoot Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.